This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Ferox Mapback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Morris. Wanted to let you know this episode of the Trauma Cast is going to be another special edition where we cover highlights from a recent surgical meeting. The meeting in question for this episode is the Surgical Infection Society, which was held in San Diego earlier in June. I would like to extend a special thanks to Dante Ye from the East Emergency General Surgery Committee for heading up this effort. He recruited several East members and friends. Uh, to help record these interviews, specifically Rondi Gelbard, April Mendoza, Rishi Rattan, and Vanessa Ho. I want to thank all of them for their contribution, and it's really nice to hear these clips as it feels like you get to learn some of the take-home messages from attending the meeting. So thanks to all those who participated and made this possible. This is Dante Ye reporting live from the 2019 Surgical Infection Society meeting. I'm joined right now by L- Dr. Lillian Cow uh, from McGovern Medical Center, and she's going to talk to us about her uh, proposal entitled Alliance for Surgical Site Infections Studies. Okay, great. Uh, thank you so much for uh, asking me about our proposal. So this was a proposal for the new innovation uh, award for this uh, SIS. And uh, one of the uh, prerequisites was that it was supposed to be a multi-center study or to uh, set up the infrastructure to conduct future multi-center trials. So the idea behind it is to start with uh, a question that actually plagues us at our institution, which is, what should we do with the skin after trauma laparotomy? Certainly most surgeons try to leave it open because they don't want to get dinged for an SSI, but if you look at patients and how they do after uh, their trauma laparotomy, pretty sure that they would rather have take a chance of getting a small SSI versus having their large incision remain open. But nonetheless, in order to more rigorously study this, we have developed a Bayesian calculator, and what that means is Whereas you can convert a lot of regression, traditional regression models to um, calculate a risk, it's usually more in terms of strata. Like if you get a score of 5 to 8, then your risk of an SSI is 10 to 20 percent, etc. So a Bayesian calculator can actually take the variables and give you a probability of infection for that patient. And um, we are using variables that are only available by the end of the operation so that surgeons have it at the point of care when they're making the decision of what to do with the um, incision. And then we're going to use this calculator to uh, decide on enrollment criteria for a randomized trial of uh, closing or leaving the skin open plus negative pressure wound therapy for both arms. Uh, And then um, we can actually use the probabilities that we get from the trial and Bayesian methodology to then recalculate the risk of SSI, taking into account your risk before you made a decision and then your risk after you decide what to do with the skin to come up with what we call a posterior probability of whether that patient's going to have an SSI. And then lastly, we're going to incorporate patient-reported outcomes Uh, into the trial uh, in order to better assess um, how patients actually perceive their wounds 
and their function. Very cool. Very interesting. I wish you the best of luck in the innovative uh, in the innovation award competition. I do have to ask you, Dr. Cao, what is for you personally? At what point? At what level of percentage of infectious risk would you personally leave a, 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 an incision open? Are you asking uh, another person's wound, or if You're, I have a trauma laparotomy? You, you fly back and you operate tonight. <laughs> right. what no, is no, you, no, what you mean you if do? I have a trauma laparotomy? No, no, no. If oh. you're a patient that you are operating on. I have to say I'm pretty conservative, although um, going around and changing wounds, my percentage may be changing. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to let her slide out of this uh, question without answering it. <laughs> Hi, this is Rondi Gelbard reporting from the Surgical Infection Society in San Diego, California. I'm here with Chung Ho Leung from St. Michael's Hospital, who recently presented his fascinating paper, Immunomodulatory Effects of Remote Ischemic Conditioning in Hemorrhagic Shock Patients in a Randomized Controlled Trial. Chung Ho, could you tell us a little bit about your study and what it entailed? Sure. Um, we studied an intervention called remote ischemic conditioning. It's a very simple intervention where brief episodes of ischemia and reperfusion is applied either to the arm or on the thigh by inflating and deflating a blood pressure cuff. So from animal studies, we know that brief periods of ischemia, such as five minutes, applied to the limb offers uh, resistance against prolonged ischemia, reperfusion injury in remote organs. So we thought about applying this intervention to trauma patients in hemorrhagic shock because when we resuscitate trauma patients, they also experience ischemia, reperfusion injury that causes um, immune cell dysfunction as well as oxidative stress. Okay, great. Can you tell us a little bit about the results of your study? So the primary outcomes from our study is we measured a neutrophil activation as well as systemic inflammation. We found that um, ischemic conditioning prevented neutrophil degranulation as well as preventing the rise in Th2 chemokines. These results have important implications because the rise in Th2 chemokine and as well as the shift from Th1 to Th2 immunity is associated with immunosuppression in resuscitated hemorrhagic shock patients. So what are your plans for taking this study to the next step? So our study is actually the first clinical trial to look at the effect of ischemic conditioning in hemorrhagic shock patients. So the first trial, we applied ischemic conditioning as the patient is admitted to the trauma bay. And we found that on average, it took over two hours just to initiate this intervention in trauma patients. And we think that the delay in administering the intervention may lose some of its beneficial effects. So the next step is we want to apply ischemic conditioning as early as possible to trauma patients so we may actually attempt to administer ischemic conditioning on the ambulance 
as the patient is being transported to the hospital. Well, thank you so much for participating uh, in this East TraumaCast. Um, once again, we're reporting from the Surgical Infection Society in San Diego. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm April Mendoza. I'm at the 2019 uh, Surgical Infection Society. I'm talking today with uh, Christina Zhang. She is at SUNY Downstate, but she's doing her research at Washington University. The title of her talk was Temporary Abdominal Closure is Associated with Increased Risk for Fungal Intra-Abdominal Infections in Trauma Patients. We found it super interesting. So, Dr. Zhang, can you tell us more about your research today? Okay, thank you for a great opportunity to talk about my research here. And uh, so, uh, fungal infection, we know they really increase risk of morbidity, mortality in the trauma population, and the perforated viscous injury will increase the instance of fungal infection and colonization. And uh, during my literature review, I found there are actually very few studies investigating the risk factor for acquiring fungal intraabdominal infections in post-operative trauma patient population, especially patients well, underwent for trauma ex-lab. So my project we come out the goal to, to examine the instance, the risk factors, and the outcomes of the patient who developed post-operative uh, fungal intraabdominal infection in this patient population. So we looked into our um, prospectively maintained trauma registry from uh, 2005 to 2018 for 13 period time for the patients who underwent for trauma ex-lab. Then we. Uh, we identified the patient with a clinical suspicion of intraabdominal infection using the intraabdominal fluid cultures obtained at least 48 hours after initial operation based on the SIS guideline. Thank you, SIS. <laughs> and, um, and then we, all, we confirmed all the positive cultures and looked into uh, documented radiographic and clinic uh, evidence for infection. And on top of that, we also looked into the antimicrobial treatment uh, th uh, therapy duration, which uh, the patient have to receive at least four days of antimicrobial uh, treatments. And then if the patient meet all this criteria, we confirm they have a post-operative intraabdominal infection. Then based on their fungal speciation, then we, uh, fungal or bacterial speciation, then we separate them into bacterial or fungal cohorts. Then, then I separate them cohorts, there are, um, we identified 1675 patients who underwent for trauma ex-lab, and uh, actually 105 patients with the confirmed post-operative intraabdominal infections. 45 is in uh, 40 patients is in fungal group, 65 patients is in the bacterial group. There is no difference in demographics and comorbidities between those two groups, but the fungal group did have higher injury severity scores. The bacterial group had a higher large bowel perforation but there's no difference in stomach perforation. So this is actually very interesting. This population cohort is different from what we see in emergency general surgery cohorts, which majority patient who has fungal infection has gastric perforation. Then we, uh, we evaluated over 30 risk factors um, in our uh, registry, which is patient-related, um, injury-related, intra-op, post-op. Then we're using our uh, multivariable regression model with a forward selection method. So we can, by using this method, we can include all 50 variables and to identify which one is actually the independent risk factor. And 
surprisingly and luckily, we find that the temporary abdominal closure is the only one actually associated with their post-optive fungal intraabdominal infection. And here is my paper. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Zane, this is amazing. Super interesting work. I can't wait to see what more comes out of this study. This Thank is you. probably going to be practice changing for a lot of us. Thanks so much for your time. We look forward to all your research efforts. Thank you. This is Dante Ye reporting from the 2019 Surgical Infection Society. Man, it is popping off here. The excitement is palpable. I'm joined now by uh, Dr. Hathan Kafarani from Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Kafarani has just come off stage presenting his proposal for the Innovation Award. Hatham, tell us about your proposal. Yeah, Dante, thank you for, uh, for doing this podcast and greetings to all. So uh, it's an exciting uh, competition between, uh, you know, between, uh, I think, me and two giants in the field. So I'm humbled by that. But my proposal to get a grant from the SIS is about using artificial intelligence, specifically machine learning techniques, to uh, predict the risk of emergency general surgery, trauma patients, elective surgery patients uh, in a non-linear fashion, a much more accurate and linear fashion. So very exciting research we're trying to do. And how do you, uh, pr- how do you foresee this being used in the future if you're successfully funded? Yeah, so uh, we're trying to use, the, we already have achieved the Potter calculator that some of you in the audience might know about it. Uh, but uh, we're, we're trying to do three things. We're trying to prospectively validate the product calculator, which is the artificial intelligence-based emergency general surgery predictor, trying to predict it pros- uh, pro- uh, validate it prospectively to see how, you know, how it compares to actual outcome in patients if we do it before the patients go to the OR. That's one. Two, I want to see how it compares to the surgeon's gestalt. We all go to patients and we tell them, we think your risk of infection is 30%. How accurate are we? How do we compare to the product calculator? How do we compare to the actual outcomes of patients? And the third one is I want to use the same techniques I use for the product calculator to create a product-like calculator for trauma and elective general surgery patients. All right. Well, I am beside myself with anticipation. I can't wait to see what happens next. So I wish you the best of luck, Haytham. And this is Dante Ye signing off from sunny San Diego. Hi, this is Vanessa Ho, and I'm sitting here with Brian Young, who presented a great paper at the Surgical Infection Society. And Brian, can you tell us a little bit about your project? Thank you uh, for the honor of being on the podcast. Our project took a deep dive into an example of bias against trauma centers and hospital compare, which is a value-based or paper performance program used by CMS. The program affects reimbursement, but also has a public reporting component, which is hospital-specific and available to patients online. When we were reviewing our surgical site infection performance at Metro Health Medical Center, which is a level one trauma center in Cleveland, Ohio, we noticed that the exemption for infections present at the time of surgery is very hard to get for trauma surgery when compared to our colorectal surgery colleagues. The criteria used considers trauma care to be so immediate that fecal spillage due to trauma would not have time to develop an infection. This means that organ space infections following a contained diverticular abscess would be exempt but an abdomen full of stool and a critically injured trauma patient would receive no exemptions. So we looked at the hospital compare standardized infection ratios or the SIRs from 2014 and 2016 and the overall star rating awarded in 2018 and compared trauma centers to the non-trauma centers. We found that trauma centers had worse SIRs than non-trauma hospitals and the effect was driven mostly by level one centers. 
which see the most surgical trauma and having the worst SIRs. Although it wasn't statistically significant, we observed a pattern that SIR gets worse as your trauma certification rises. For the star ratings, we didn't see a difference for trauma versus non-trauma. Actually, level 3 trauma centers had the best star rating, but we again noted a trend. Level 1 centers were significantly worse, around a half star worse than non-trauma centers, despite the rigorous processes and resources that make them the level 1 center that they are. Brian, that's really interesting. So. If that's the case, then what would you suggest that CMS should do to remedy the problem that you guys uncovered? Obviously, Hospital Compare is very robust and it's a diverse database with nearly 100 metrics contributing to the overall hospital star rating. Several other studies have proposed bias against trauma centers, but their reasoning has been more abstract and more difficult to objectively obsess, uh, assess. I think our work represents objective evidence of bias in one of these metrics, and I think the intention and goal of Hospital Compare is sound, but I would encourage continuing research and outside-the-box thinking into each of these other metrics to continue improving the process. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. This is Dante Ye. I'm here with Napa Porn Kong Kao Pai Song. Uh, who is presenting her original research from Massachusetts General Hospital. Napa Porn, can you please tell us a little bit about your research? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm interested in the necrotizing fasciitis because I'm also a surgeon and I think uh, the outcome is not that good. So I try to find like what is pitfall in managing patients so we can improve them. Okay, and tell us about your research. Yeah, so uh, what when when I practiced, I found out that the patient who were admitted to another service, the outcome is not that good because when we saw them, they are actually like look sicker, and I want to know why. Yeah, so so I conduct our our research, try to figure out that what the problem of that patient is it because of misdiagnosis or other like logistic problem. Okay, and what did you find? Yeah, actually we, we found out that patients who were admitted to another service that is not acute care surgery, uh, they often misdiagnosed as the first place. And that's why, uh, that's why they got to the operating room like too, too late. And the outcome is not good. Were they mostly medical services, or did you find some patients that were admitted to other surgical services that just ha uh, did not happen to be acute care surgery? Yeah, we we find we find like in 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 both service, but most of them were in medical care, medical service. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what would be the take home message uh, from your from your presentation? Yeah, actually, the diagnosis of uh, NSTI is is sometimes is is challenging. So I would like uh, the admitting physician to like hide a, have a high index of suspicion when they file out patient with uh, like soft tissue infection with systemic toxicity. Do not uh, delay or do not hesitate to consult a acute care surgeon because they have more experience to diagnose and treat the patient. And there you have it. Thank you very much, Napa Porn Kong Kao Pai San. Uh, for those of you who want to learn more, I direct you to the excellent East Practice Managed Guideline written on necrotizing soft tissue infection. This is Dante Ye signing off. Okay, and we're back again. I'm Rishi Ratan at the Surgical Infection Society annual meeting. 
I'm here with Dr. Bob Ball from MedStar Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C., and he is going to tell us about some interesting research he has presented here at the Surgical Infection Society. Bob, why don't you tell us a little bit about your research? Um, sure, I'd love to. Um, I currently am researching burn uh, wounds and especially the use of antibiotics um, in grafting procedures for uninfected wounds. Uh, as standard of care in burn management is to not initiate antibiotic use until there are clinical signs of infection, but the water is a little muddied when it comes to the actual surgeries um, and the perioperative use of antibiotics for grafting procedures. And we find that the use of a one-dose perioperative antibiotic is very institution and even surgeon-specific. Um, at our institution, we do not use perioperative antibiotics and find that we have comparable success to others that do. So we have designed a randomized controlled trial in which patients are either getting or not getting one dose of cefazolam before a small grafting procedure for a burn of TBSA less than 10%. Um, and then comparing outcomes, and there are three time points where we're taking samples in the forms of swabs and tissue biopsies and blood cultures, and that's interoperatively at the time of the first dressing takedown, and then at the follow-up visit at post-op day 10 to 17. All right, fascinating. So what have you found so far? So we're about a quarter way into our goal of 80 patients. And in the preliminary data that I'm presenting here, we found that the outcomes and also the bacterial concentrations are not statistically significantly different between those two groups, um, supporting the use or the lack of use of perioperative antibiotics, and especially in the era of antibiotic stewardship, um, this is something that should be really considered uh, to reduce communal uh, antimicrobial resistance and also the side effects that many people suffer from even one dose of perioperative antibiotics. Absolutely, and I think that's a really uh, interesting and germane topic. Um, Assuming that uh, as you continue enrolling patients, you continue to support these findings that you've initially found in that uh, no antibiotics at least appears to be non-inferior to using perioperative antibiotics, how do you see that uh, being applied in the future, particularly with national um, policies around skip protocols and, and things like that? You know, I think that something that's important that I think needs to be better addressed with skip protocols is that not all surgeries are the same, um, and especially in something as unique as a burn wound graft, uh, we need to really think about what is going on on the individual level, and the next step of our um, research is looking at the microbiome changes in these samples, and we've done some preliminary work on that as well, and seeing that even one dose of perioperative antibiotics causes these pretty dramatic shifts in the microbiome of the local wound that could lead to further complications. Such as? Um, such as an increase of bacterial concentration uh, species that have a more virulent uh, characteristic profile um, that could lead to worse graft take um, and the development of sepsis, which is ultimately what we're trying to avoid and logically what you would be avoiding with perioperative antibiotics, um, but I think it's just proving that's what's logical may not be what's right. Well, it's very fascinating. Um, one last question for you. Uh, it sounds like your inclusion criteria focus on relatively uh, less sick burn patients. Do you think that you would be having different findings if you included the more severe burns? 
Uh, absolutely. And I think when we get to those more severe burns, we're at an increased risk of infection just because of the amount of surface area that's exposed to infection, um, which again, I think is why that we need to work on these protocols to move them towards a more individualized approach and not necessarily give everyone antibiotics because it's what we're told to do. Well, fantastic. Uh, Dr. Ball, thank you so much for joining us here at EAST and at the Surgical Infection Society annual meeting. Fantastic presentation and best of luck with all your work. Thank you very much. This is Dante A. reporting from the 2019 Surgical Infection Society. I'm here with Joe Fernandez from the University of Pennsylvania. Joe has just delivered a riveting presentation. Joe, tell us about what you, were, uh, what you presented. Great. Thanks, Dante. Uh, yeah, I presented uh, an actual risk model for the development of surgical site infection following emergency surgery. Uh, it was a retrospective study at our uh, Level 1 Urban Center uh, in Philadelphia looking at uh, risk factors that could be predictive of surgical site infection uh, in our emergency surgery population. Uh, obviously, the emergency surgery population uh, is like an orphan population uh, characterized by specific physiologic derangements that are particular to them. And so we sought to try to identify some risk factors and incorporate them into an actionable stratification scheme uh, to uh, inform the surgeon on the probability of uh, infection and surgical site infection in that patient. Um, what we ultimately concluded uh, was that we have a seven risk factor uh, stratification screen, uh, scheme that uh, is able to inform the uh, surgeon in a actionable way, either preoperatively to uh, guide uh, discussion with the family or uh, intraoperatively to guide management of either the uh, surgical problem or the wound following the operation itself. And so uh, its utility, uh, we think, would be most useful in uh, guiding those conversations preoperatively to inform the patient and have shared decision-making, uh, but also potentially incorporate it into the EHR and, and potentially uh, take out uh, some of that thought process at the end of the case when you know everybody's sort of trying to get out of the room, but instead say, okay, well, are we going to close this wound? Are we going to leave it open? Are we going to change our management of the wound based on these uh, factors. What we ultimately found was that there were three tiers, a low, medium, and high risk, uh, with each having uh, the low risk was a 1% risk of infection, uh, the medium with an 11% risk of infection, and in our high risk group, a 34% risk of infection. Awesome. Awesome, Joe. So let me ask you, how does this risk calculator... Um, how, do, how does it align with the usual wound classifications that we as surgeons are used to? Clean, clean contaminated, contaminated, etc. So we looked at SSI as a binary event, either a present or absent. And so it, the way it would align uh, with that, we didn't specifically look at, but in terms of understanding how uh, the wound will evolve following uh, the operation, we hope that this would be able to uh, guide the management of uh, our uh, therapy at the time of closure or potentially heighten your uh, surveillance post-operatively uh, for infection following. Great, great. As, now, let me ask you, aside from leaving the wound open or, or doing something immediately intraoperatively, 
What other actions can you imagine that the surgeon would do differently after using your uh, risk calculator? Well, I personally, based on some of the new literature that's coming out, like negative pressure wound therapy and especially the incisional vac, I think you know that decision-making process with the patient and their cosmetic result is, is, is important. So uh, potentially avoiding leaving the wound open at all is, mm -hmm. is, is a good thing. But also a heightened surveillance later on uh, in the course of the uh, post-operative period, I think, is important. Further, if you're in a situation where a prosthetic may be indicated, for example, in some sort of contaminated hernia, for example, mm. um, the use of a prosthetic that would have a low risk of infection or no prosthetic at that time uh, is something that would change, you know, your intraoperative decision making. Got it. Got it. Very good. And just for the record, do you have any conflicts of interest or financial disclosures? No. All right. Very good. That's it. You've heard it here first at the 2019 Surgical Infection Society. This is Dante Ye signing off. Hi, I'm April Mendoza. I'm with Bobby Kesky today from University of Chicago. I'm I'm talking with him at the SAS 2019 meeting, and he gave a great talk about the preoperative dietary rehab that reduces the risk of lethal gut-derived sepsis. Bobby, please talk about your research with us today. Yeah, sure. So uh, I work in Dr. Alverdi's lab where we, he's been studying the microbiome for a long time, and we were terribly interested to see how preoperative diet could affect postoperative outcomes. So we used a mouse model uh, that we were able to replicate surgical injury by performing a 30% hepatectomy. And we took the mice pre-op and we put them on a Western diet, which is low in fiber, high in fat, and then exposed the mice to five days of antibiotics. And after the six weeks of uh, Western diet and five days of antibiotics, uh, about 80% of the mice died post-operatively compared to mice that ate a normal chow diet, which is unprocessed grains and high in fibers. 100% of those mice survived when they were exposed to antibiotics and underwent surgery. So there's big changes that happen to the composition of the microbiota from the Western diet by itself. We see uh, loss of bacteroides and increase in firmicutes. And then we also see a loss of the ability of those bacteria to function as noted by the level of short chain fatty acids, um, which then in turn affect the host in a variety of ways, but mainly through its effects on the immune system. So with those outcomes, uh, with the stark difference between the mice that had a high-fat diet versus a chow diet, uh, we asked the question of whether or not we were able to rescue those mice preoperatively or pre-antibiotic exposure. So we took the mice uh, that were originally on a high-fat diet and switched them back over to a chow diet. Um, initially, we just arbitrarily picked three and seven days. Uh, so they start off on a Western diet for six weeks, and then we switched them to a chow-based diet. After three or seven days, they then um, underwent antibiotic exposure for five days and then a hepatectomy. And after a week of chow, uh, the high fiber diet, we were able to rescue the mice 100% of the time. And when we looked at the microbiota postoperatively in the recovery or uh, after the surgery, we didn't really see a major difference in the composition of the microbiota. So then we asked what was happening preoperatively with this dietary prehab. Um, and we were able to show that actually after three days, uh, three and seven days, we were able to reverse the changes of a Western diet um, by just giving the high fiber diet. And then 
Um, based off of that, you know, since there was some variation in the amount of time that it took to recover the microbiota, we then attempted to see if there was a way we could test the stool of these mice to predict when their microbiota recovered. And we were able to find that, you know, the microbiota rapidly changed just after a day of uh, changing the mice to the chow diet from a Western diet. But this in turn did not convey protection. So you see this rapid change in the bacteria that's there over a course of 24 to 48 hours, but it really doesn't stabilize out for over a week um, on, a, on a chow diet uh, in order to see the protection from antibiotics and surgery. Um, and then we also kind of took this into context with what was going on with the function of the microbiota, and we looked at the levels of butyrate within the stool, which overall didn't appear to recover, but when you normalize this for the amount of bacteria in the stool, you start to see a trend where when you change the diet, the amount of butyrate per bacteria drops in that first two to three days where we don't see improvement in outcomes and then it recovers after a week. So really what we showed was preoperative diet makes a huge difference as far as the microbiota. You can reverse the effects of uh, Western diet-induced dysbiosis, and you could potentially predict this with stool biomarkers as far as the compositional changes and functional changes that happen. Hey, this is Vanessa Ho, and I'm sitting here with Hussein Ladani at the Surgical Infection Society. He presented a really interesting paper entitled Catheter-Associated Urinary Tract Infections Among Trauma Patients, Poor Quality of Care, or Marker of Effective Rescue. Um, Hussein, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your study and also it describes some of the results? Sure. Well, we have known that in all hospitalized patients, cauties are bad, and they lead to increased morbidity and mortality. But the impact of cauties uh, is really poorly defined in trauma patients, who we all know are high risk due to their mobility restrictions, their complex abdominal and pelvic injuries, and really prolonged hospital courses. So our objective was to evaluate the clinical outcomes between patients with and without cauties. And we hypothesized that patients with cauties will have worse outcomes such as long hospital length of stay, fewer discharges to home, and a higher inpatient mortality. So we used a TQIP database and we identified over 238,000 patients of which um, almost 1,700 patients or 0.7% had a diagnosis of CAUTI. Uh, we then used propensity score matching to match patients um, with uh, based on all ba- uh, patient injury and hospital factors and we performed match pair analysis between the two groups um, and we uh, saw that patients with CAUTI had long hospital length of stay, more ICU and vent days, higher rates of, rates of other healthcare associated infections such as clapsies, ventilator associated pneumonias, more unplanned events such as intubations, operations, and ICU admissions, fewer discharges to home, and, and really contrary to our hypothesis, they also had lower inpatient mortality. So your matched CAUTI patients had a lower mortality than the patients without CAUTI? You would almost expect the CAUTI patients to have higher mortality because they have that infection. So how do you explain that? No, that is correct. So we, we think that the decreased mortality that we saw in the CAUTI patients, it has more to do with the unmeasured confounders such as different practice patterns between trauma centers and the higher number of unplanned events uh, that we saw in the CAUTI group such as uh, intubations, operations, and ICU admissions rather than the CAUTI itself. 
So what do you think are the implications of this study? A good question. So we have all been told that cotties are bad, they're expensive, and, and worse, we, have, we are being judged on them. So what we think our study suggests is that in a group of high-risk trauma patients, cotties may be an unintended consequence of the rescue care that we provide in the form of unplanned operations, intubations, and admissions, rather than a marker of poor quality of care. And grading us on the rate of cotties is perhaps misdirected. That's really interesting. Well, thank you, and that's excellent work, and congratulations. Thank you for having us. This is Dante Gay. I'm here with Rob Sawyer, who has just come off stage presenting his proposal for the Innovation Award competition. Rob, can you tell us a little bit about your proposal? Well, what we're going to try to do, we hope, is use um, implementation technologies or, or methodology to see if we can um, come up with a way which will allow a more consistent application of the findings of the STOP IT trial in terms of treating intra-abdominal infections that have source control, meaning uh, trying to find a way to convince clinicians that giving four days of antibiotics for an intra-abdominal infection uh, is preferable to uh, a longer duration of therapy. And where do you see this uh, proposal going if you uh, win the Innovation Award competition? Well, the goal is to use uh, the, the Innovation Award, if, if, I, if I'm fortunate enough to get it, to go ahead with the planning phases of the trial, including the, the actual protocol and, and uh, investigator meetings and putting all the materials together to have it ready to submit to the NIH for uh, funding for a multi-center um, uh, intervention. All right, excellent, very exciting stuff. And um, real quickly, for those of the or the, those of the audience who have been living under a rock for the for past few years, <laughs> can you briefly summarize the uh, the Stop It trial? So the the Stop It trial was a twenty nine center uh, study where patients with intra-abdominal infections who were treated and had adequate source control were, were randomized either to just four days of antibiotics or antibiotics until their uh, white blood cell count and fever and ileus resolved. Uh, what that resulted in was two groups, one that got four days worth of antibiotics, and the other got around eight days. Uh, and overall, there was no difference whatsoever in terms of either recurrent intra-abdominal infection or death or surgical site infection. So the, the, the two things were equivalent, um, uh, the, the two arms were equivalent, even though the one only got four days of antibiotics versus eight. All right. Thank you very much. Well, folks, you hear, you heard it here. This is Dante Ye signing off from the 2019 Surgical Infection Society. Hi, everybody. Dave Morris here. I just wanted to thank again all those that participated in this podcast. Really special thanks to those guest moderators who did the interviews at the meeting. I'm sure we barely scratched the surface of the interesting content that was presented at the meeting. As I've said in the past, if you are interested in participating in this kind of thing, if you're going to a meeting that you think would be of interest to other trauma and acute care surgeons, please let me know. You can contact me through the East TraumaCast handle on Twitter. You can email me. You can find my contact on the East webpage. But uh, as you can tell, this is a great opportunity to get involved and uh, spread the knowledge at these meetings to those who don't have the good fortune to attend. Thanks again. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. 
And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the east.